You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Jerry Parker, Moritz Siebert, and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, which is our weekly ongoing raw exploration of the world of rules-based investing, and of course, where we take some of your questions. But today, we are going to deviate a little bit from the usual format, because we are delighted to be joined by a very special guest, namely the one and only Mep Faber, who I'm sure many of you already know from his Great podcast and blog. So, Meb, welcome to the show. And of course, as usual, good morning, Jerry, and good afternoon to you, Moritz. Hi, Niels. Hi, Meb. Hi, Jerry. Great to be here. No better way that I'd rather spend my Saturday chatting with you guys all over the world. Absolutely. Technology is uh, wonderful as, as long as it works. Um, but it's great to have you with us uh, today. We have a lot of things we want to dive into. Um, and also from sort of the part of the systematic world and approach that you uh, bring. Um, but before we do that, uh, we normally just do a quick review of the past week from the lens of a trend follower. So uh, while you might have an extra cup of coffee, I'm just going to quickly go through our normal little routine. And so uh, Moritz, as you always are the one who kicks off the um, this little part of uh, our conversation. How was your week? Uh, what happened? There was a few. I did see that there was a few reasonable market moves in the commodity sector. Uh, in particular, Lean Hogs had a big down move this week. And on the upside, we saw moves in copper, platinum, palladium, and some of the energy markets. Uh, fixed income continues their march uh, north. And of course, the stock markets in the US, they saw the S&P make new 2019 high. So um, how did that all play out on your side, Moritz? Yeah, so once again, you want to start me with the negative news, huh? So maybe it's the point we have to change and <laughs> Jerry needs to start. But um, it's a real bummer. Another, you know, 2% down this past week, um, mainly driven by by the energy moves. So energies, you know, heating oil, WTI, Brent, gasoline, gas oil, all of those markets um, pretty much moved up during the past five days. And I still have too much of a short position on, even though that's changing gradually, but those were the, the largest losers. Um, made money from the moves in the bonds, but not too much. Uh, currencies kind of neutral, still long. US dollar against most of the other uh, currencies, but there hasn't been that much, that much action. And um, equities kind of quiet. So so really, um, really, yeah, the energies, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I mean, we certainly saw uh, some smaller losses, I would say, on the in the energy side. Um, the, uh, you know, the big winners for us this week, and it, this week was actually a good week for us, um, was Lean Hawks and Wheat. Um, they were carrying the flag um, and, uh, and did really well. Um, the biggest loser this week was the British pound. I guess the, you know, the, the, the rally we've seen the last uh, seven days, uh, despite yeah. all the uh, uncertainty, uh, didn't do so well for our short position uh, on that side. Fixed income still adds a little bit uh, of a positive tailwind every week. Um, but uh, yeah, generally quiet uh, with a little bit of a... Uh, um, an upside uh, bias in, in performance uh, this week. But of course... As usual, we're also very excited to hear uh, your view, Jerry, because you bring a different dimension to the trend-following world compared to us, namely the single stocks. Um, so, um, how does that how does that look uh, today? 
So yeah, there was some uh, positive um, moves in the single stocks, uh, adding to longs, um, watching the shorts rally, the utilities and real estate continue to go higher, make new highs. And we're just adding uh, to a sort of random positions, our portfolio of single names, hopefully is incredibly diversified. So we have every chart pattern imaginable. They're all sort of rallying, but some off of all time lows, and then some just making new highs and <clears throat> have been making highs for quite a while. So very appreciative of that sector, Ca uh, cattle as well, palladium, it's the number one performer, strongest market out there probably. Um, we lost a little bit of money with the rally in copper and some of the base metals. I look, I think gold looks good. Gold's getting, uh, it's probably a long for most people. It's looking good for a long for us as well. So yeah, quiet week in the dollar, mostly, maybe a loss, but um, I'm more hopeful. Things are looking up. Well, we need the longs. Uh, as I've said before, when trend followers start talking about their shorts and <clears throat> that's where the action is, it's not going to be as good as uh, getting long something that can double, triple, quadruple. That's very true. That's very true. Well, that was certainly probably our quickest review of the week. But of course, there's a good reason for that, because we want to spend as much time as we possibly can talking to you, Mep. And uh, as mentioned, we we all look, uh, we've all really looked forward to uh, to this week uh, and having you on the show. And and because you diff you really do bring a different uh, aspect to uh, to the world uh, of sort of the systematic investment uh, side. And I know Jerry and and Moritz have lots of questions, but. Before we dive in, I, I thought maybe we could kick off just by framing the conversation and 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 really find out a little bit more about how you ended up sort of being a proponent of the systematic uh, space. And particularly, of course, our interest is how you end up liking things like trend following, which is not, uh, you know, it's not always that you find people so positively vocal about these things. So, so what's your what's your story here, Mep? Oh man, you know, like many, um, I, I ended up somewhere by, by stumbling into it, but also by making all the other mistakes, um, and losing lots of money. So, uh, you know, I was, I was an engineer, I was a biotech guy and was wandering down the fundamental path of, of studying healthcare companies. And I, I remember this was right out of college, um, Right down the road from Jerry, where uh, you know this was the the really the big bubble, the, the fun U.S. bubble, which would have been the late '90s, um, was happening, and um, that was not just a bubble in market cap weighted large cap stocks in the U.S. for the telecom and IT space and the, and the dot coms, but also in in biotech and a lot of excitement around the human genome and sequencing that with both Solera as well as the, as the government. And, uh, I was a biotech guy. So I was, I was totally caught up in my first bubble, loved it. Nothing's more exciting and, and, uh, than a bubble. It's a lot of fun. Um, and so I was working as a biotech fund and, and remembering, um, it was a long only fund and, and thinking to myself, uh, that, you know, despite how good you may be at stock picking, if you're in a sector or market that proceeds to go down 50 or 70 or 90 percent, it doesn't really matter what stocks you pick. Um, you're 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 going to feel the pain train. And so um, I started to understand 
that by going through it, by experiencing it. Um, you know, I, I was smiling as a lot of the experiences and reactions and thoughts that I had during that bubble certainly was echoed in many times since. But watching a lot of my younger friends get get involved in cryptocurrencies last year, um, you you heard a lot of the same rhymes. But anyway, um, I, I moved out to California, started working um, more and more towards a systematic path, more and more away from healthcare and fundamentals. It's, fundamentals very much still plays a, a large role in a lot of things we do, but. Uh, having no formal training in what a lot of um, could be considered uh, the basics of finance, kind of kind of stumbled upon it all myself. So probably made a million mistakes and, and spent a thousand hours uh, reinventing the wheel on a lot of things. But but kind of arrived at trend following, um, you know, just through experimentation and reading and everything else, and kind of scratched my head and and, and wondered. Why doesn't why doesn't the rest of the world kind of think this way? And I remember, you know, same way that Buffett talks about value inoculation. Um, I, I was I was bitten with the the trend following mosquito, and I think I had a conversation this week where I said I, I still don't understand why uh, a lot of um, institutional allocators don't think this way. But uh, it's been a fun journey. But but if I that's the long winded answer to the the short summary, which is I made a lot of mistakes to get there, and and eventually figured out that this was a approach that made a lot of sense for me personally um, for a lot of reasons. I mean, I think you're in good company here when it comes to no real formal education in, in sort of finance, and, and but yet we're all, you know, very passionate about the, the trend-following space. Um, Jerry Moritz, why don't you um, just sort of chime in here and let's make it a, sort of a, a conversation from, from all sides. Uh, I don't know, Jerry, do you want to kick off? Uh, you've obviously been on MEP's show, so uh, there's always a, a, already a good connection there. Do you want to? kick off with some of your thoughts yeah i mean i we uh, shared our questions with each other and mine were in one direction uh sort of uh, uh it's all about me i think to some degree so i apologize for that but uh i guess um from an out you're sort of an outsider but you're sort of an insider you write great stuff uh a lot of people know about trend following because of you you know and uh, more so than us let's say but so I'm sort of interested in your take, and I have been to a conference a few years ago when you were speaking. One of the thoughts that you had was um, <clears throat> something like, uh, in your analysis, clients should be willing to have major allocations to CTAs, 50% or whatever. <clears throat> and given that uh, CTAs do have a sort of a systematic approach, they have all these markets, you know, currencies, commodities, stocks, bonds, the availability to create these portfolios in any way that they want long and short, uh, you know, how if they sort of, from your point of view, how, how do you think they've blown it? Cause they really don't have a lot of AUM, even with the mutual funds that are available, uh, I guess recent performance is harming those to some degree, but it must be deeper than that from an outsider sort of semi outsider point of view. I, I think so much of this relates to branding and marketing. Um, we did an old post on the blog unrelated to this topic, but I think it's instructive where we talked about the old taste tests between Coke and Pepsi, where in blind taste tests, almost everyone prefers Pepsi. But if you if you reveal what the soda is, most people still prefer Coke. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I'm a Coke guy. I would never drink Pepsi. So I'm, I'm probably struck with the same bias. But it tells a lot about the way the human brain works, as well as memories and, and attachment and branding. 
And so if you think about investing in general, I think there's some really good brands. The example I was giving was dividends, and, and people love high-yielding dividend stocks, for example, despite the fact they're hugely tax inefficient, despite the fact that you should never own them really in a tax account, um, and they underperform a lot of other strategies, and they're really a non, kind of a nonsensical strategy. We don't have to go down that rabbit hole, but my point being, people still love them. And why do they love them? They have the brand of people think you're getting a check in the mail, the, there's the image of the retiree, you know, or someone living on an island and collecting their dividend checks as if they're, you know, um, somehow getting paid just just to own these companies. And so um, I said dividends have a great brand, and these dividend funds have raised hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. Now it's not the worst investment strategy, but but it's a nonsensical one. So as you think about trend following. And you think about its real origins um, and, and kind of the ways we describe trend following. It's, it's really in the managed futures world. And, and um, you know, some of you guys have been around a lot longer than I have, but uh, certainly trend following many of these managed futures funds have some of the best performing continuous track records in history. And we're talking, you know, it's, um, on par with some of the top hedge funds of all time, top investment strategies of all time. So why isn't that strategy the dominant strategy in addition to the fact that it diversifies your traditional global portfolio. And I think, um, I think it's simple. I, I think uh, there, there's two components. One is that it was labeled managed futures, which I think just sounds scary. I think anytime you say the word futures, people think derivatives, people think Buffett's phrase, weapons of mass destruction. You know, They think that somehow they hear the stories of people uh, blowing up funds and banks and everything else. And it's just kind of a scary term. Um, and the second is that it's, uh, it's uncomfortable, you know, and it's a career risk, meaning if you go out there and you buy the 60, 40 portfolio and it doesn't do well, you can explain it. You can explain it to anyone. If you do 60, 40 tilted with dividends, even better. Um, but if you have something weird like managed futures, um, or some sort of trend following exposure and you do poorly, then um, obviously you lose your job. If you do well, you may get a pat on the back. Hey, you did slightly better in 08, but you know, great for you. Um, so I think a lot of it has to do with simple just branding. I think if we were to teleport uh, in our time machine back to 1970s or prior um, or talk to Ch Charles Dow 100 years ago and said, hey, look, you know, let's call this something different. Let's just call it the trend following index, you know, or, or some sort of some sort of better uh, better description. I think it would probably be the dominant investing strategy. Now, the way that I like to describe it to institutions that are or people that are uh, somewhat reluctant, I say, you know, if you think about it, all of your equities, the original John Bogle, Markowitz sort of uh, index is a trend following index on stocks market cap weighting if you think about it it's also somewhat nonsensical all you're doing is investing in stocks you invest more the bigger they get you invest less the smaller they get and bigger meaning by price times shares outstanding that's like the ultimate trend following index <laughs> they just they never sell they just sell when it gets kicked out of the index for getting too small so it has a slightly different algorithm but talk about that raised a trillion dollars so they called it passive index and market cap weighting but it's literally trend following on equities, different form. Um, so they got the branding right. So I, I think it's it's just a, a question of, um, you know, I think the thing I, I may have said in that conference was, if you 
took any scientist or any allocator and, and blinded the return streams of any trend-following index, managed futures versus stocks, bonds, anything going back to uh, certainly the 70s, but you can simulate it back prior to that, and said, you know, how much of this should you include in your portfolio? Well, the number it kicks out often is like half into managed futures and trend-following strategies, but um, I think we're the outlier. We, we allocate half to, to trend-following type of ideas, but I, I don't know any other institution that really has ever allocated more than, say, 10%. So, um, if it, again, once again, long-winded answer to your question, but I think, uh, I think it's simply a matter of branding that has snowballed over, over the years. <laughs> yeah, long-winded, but very good answer. Thanks for that, Matt. Um, I just want to get you know back a little. Um, when you started, you you know just said that you uh, you had a bio engineering education, but at you know a certain point in, in your life, you um, made the decision to become an entrepreneur. In addition to all the trading stuff that you know you uh, you got an interest in, but so when did you start Cambria, Cambria and and what drove you to do that? How difficult was it? Uh, how did you get it you know off the ground? Uh, how did you you know raise assets? Maybe speak a little, little bit about the. Um, difficulties in that journey uh, as it relates to that. Sure. The the biggest compliment we give anyone in the money management business, and this actually applies to life and almost any endeavor, whether it's writing, uh, you're in entertainment, whatever the, the uh, job or um, career is, the biggest compliment you can give someone is just surviving. You know, I, I look back and, and so many, so many funds and companies go out of business. If you look at the S&P over the years, all the companies that have gone out of business, it's, it's hard, you know, and that's capitalism, right? So anyway, I, I was a dumb 20-something uh, guy living in Lake Tahoe. I, I said I was uh, working for a CTA, but really I was uh, doing my best to be a ski bum. And if anyone has been keeping uh, abreast of the news in Tahoe, they've been getting kind of record snow this week. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a little melancholy about not being there. I haven't been, uh, been skiing in Tahoe this year. But um, I was living there and, and had a college roommate that lived in uh, Los Angeles in a place called Manhattan Beach, where I now live. And so I used to come visit and said, this is, uh, I've always been a mountain guy, but this is pretty nice. This is pretty nice at the beach. Um, so I said, I'm, I had met uh, my partner um, who came from a kind of VC transactional law uh, sort of M&A background. And uh, he said, why don't you come down for a year? We'll, we'll give some of your ideas runway. I'll help fund it. And uh, we can try and see how it works. And I said, worst case scenario, I, uh, I live at the beach. Best case scenario, something works out. And so traded my skis for surfboard, came down here for a year. That year has now become like 10 or 12. I can't even count anymore at this point. So I moved here mid-2000s. Um, and so the company, like many, had no idea what we were doing. Uh, we had never started an investment advisor, had certainly never run any uh, public funds. But we had uh, some ideas and so had actually started a couple private funds and separate accounts. I think our first client came from a op-ed I wrote in the LA Times. The only op-ed I've ever written in my life, but um, I, I randomly wrote one <laughs> about pension funds um, and, and their unrealistic expectations, which is funny because 10, year, 10 years later I'm saying the same thing. <laughs> the sort of serendipitous beginnings of some of these ideas where you look back, and at many points, there was absolutely no sign that uh, you know we would be surviving one, three, five, ten years later. Um, but the the trend following origins of 
kind of some of the stuff we started doing in, in writing. I was also not a writer, engineer. Um, if you read my early writing, it, it very much reads like an engineer. I don't, I don't know that it's any better now, but, um, you know, had, had written my first academic paper uh, to great irony to, to avoid taking a test, you know, and I think there's no better motivation for a lot of people than uh, trying to avoid doing something else whether it's laundry or going to the gym or uh, mowing the lawn, you know, you get the most productive you've ever been when you're trying to avoid something you really don't want to do. Taxes coming up soon, maybe. Um, so I wrote my first paper to avoid taking a test uh, for one of these accreditations. And that became kind of the, the origins for a lot of the trend following work we eventually uh, wrote more about and, and implemented. Um, but just one of those random little occurrences that, uh, that, that, kind of cause the fork in the road to move left rather than rather than right. Interesting. One more thing, you know, listening to a couple of your podcasts lately and, you know, uh, with with your business, you're you're in momentum, you're in value, you're in trend following, you're in shareholder yield. There's a whole bunch of things. I heard you say that you believe that trend following is a great complement to value. And I, you know, we're thinking about that because we had this point on on our show a couple of times saying that, well, really you know, we could be doing just pure trend following, 100% of it. That would be great. And in fact, you know, we're doing it. And so if I say, take my trend following trading system and I scale it to the same volatility as say Berkshire Hathaway or some other, you know, value type of investing strategy, then the result is, well, I like my trend following trading system and I don't want the value thing. So why do you think it's, it's a great blend? By far, the most important thing in all of the investing space, I think, is for people to find an approach that works for them. And I actually don't think, as I get older, uh, I, I don't think the particular investing approach that people undertake is the most important thing. I think the most important thing is is how much they save and how much they invest in the first place. And when they start to save and invest, I think for most people that swamps how much they're going to return on their portfolios. And so, uh, you know, what we love talking about, which is the fun part, which is the sexy part, talking about the investing side, and it's endlessly fascinating. You know, we could spend many, many hours, um, you know, going down rabbit holes of the best way to do value investing or, or momentum or anything else, market cap weighting. I, I think the hardest part for most people, and, and, and when I say people, by the way, I mean, I mean institutions too, most of the institutions we talk to are just as bad as the average person on the street as far as um, building and, and sticking with the portfolio. And a lot of the academic research backs that up too. Um, you know, is, is finding an approach that works for them. And, and the problem with that comment is there's a huge education gap in investing. You know, so they don't teach in the U.S. At least they don't teach personal finance or investing in high school or college. Not mandatory. Um, you need a fair amount of financial history to have a good grounding in um, in the markets. And then even once you know that, you really don't find your way, your path until you experience it. You know, so much Mike, like me going through the bubble in the late 2000s or the people that were buying seven houses in the mid 2000s or um, the people that put all their retirement savings into the top 10 cryptos last year you don't necessarily know what your investing style is until you felt the real pain of losing money. Um, some people, we mentioned Buffett earlier, say they were inoculated kind of at birth. They knew what they their strategy was going to be forever, and, and God bless them. Um, 
But for a lot of people, they got to kind of stumble their way into it. And the problem, of course, with that is so much of what goes on in our world plays out on not a quarterly or even yearly time frame, but it's decades. I mean, there's some investment approaches that I think are totally viable that could have an entire decade of underperformance. People used to ask me, said, Meb, what, what do you think is a reasonable time frame to assess XYZ strategy? And you usually talk about my own, but I said, I used to think it was 10 years. Now I think it's 20. But how many people you know, are, are willing to sit around for 20 years and, and look into an investing strategy? Uh, very few. So um, I, it's, it's a Saturday morning, so you guys caught me on, on a fair amount of coffee and tea so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm giving you the, the really long-winded workaround answer. But the way that I think is most important to build a portfolio, and this is what we spend most of our time thinking about, actually. It's not the, the mechanics of the individual portfolios or funds. I think we have 11 now. It's how can you best structure a portfolio that will keep people behaving well in institutions? And so for me... You know, if you look at buy and hold, there's plenty of issues that people have with buy and hold. Um, and the biggest one is, is traditionally, if you look like a 2018, um, when almost everything went down, but certainly in 2008, you know, people struggle with the drawdowns. And you can't find a 60-40 portfolio globally anywhere that hasn't declined by at least two-thirds at some point. You know, certainly after inflation, it can be even far worse. Um, so that's hard because it often coincides with recessions and bad economy and bad geopolitical news flow. So again, 2008, your portfolio is going down the same time you're getting a, a margin call on your house at the same time you may have lost your job and at Lehman and, and all that happens at once. So it's not necessarily a really diversifying investment. Over the long term, sure, but over the short term, it's not. And that's kind of where trend following shines as a complement to what's going on in the, in the rest of the portfolio. But trend following is, as we all know, as most of us probably <laughs> experienced in 2018 and other years, um, is not safe from its own struggles. Um, they tend not to be the same struggles and the same timing as a lot of the buy and hold or value stuff. Uh, so, you know, it's the whipsaws, it's the times, um, the biggest struggles of trend following, I think for allocators and investors is looking different you know, is the risk of, hey, the S&P is up 20, why are you only up five? Or um, whatever it may be, my neighbor's getting rich on Ethereum, why, why am I not in this, uh, as opposed to this trend following fund? And so it's a different set of struggles. So we've kind of settled on this yin-yang, and this is what works for me personally. For other people, it could be totally different, of half in each. So half in the global market portfolio, which is roughly half stocks and bonds, half U.S. and half rest of the world, and half in trend-following strategies. And um, this is a riff on an old John Bogle quote, and he would roll over in his grave. God bless him. I think he's national treasure. But to, to, to hear us talking about trend-following and, and repurposing his quote about buy and hold, but he used to say, you know, he has a 50-50 stock bond allocation. And, you know, he says because... He wants to spend half his time worrying he has too much in stocks and half the time worrying he has too much in bonds. And that's kind of the way that I've repurposed the trend following is that I put half in sort of buy and hold investments. So when, uh, when the world's cruising along, I, I feel you know, soft and fuzzy about how, how things are going and I don't feel too different from everything. But at the same time, uh, have a large allocation to trend following that 
that makes me feel like um, I'm, I'm hopefully protected and diversified when, when it hits the fan too. You talked uh, in the beginning uh, a little bit about, you know, why maybe managed futures hasn't caught on. And, and one of the things you mentioned was the fact that uh, it is perceived to be risky as soon as you mentioned the word futures and, and so on and so forth. Um, you recently wrote about sort of uh, how to stay rich and you talked about the perceived safety on the other side of the coin of say u.s treasuries compared to you know uh, you know uh, you know what we feel that they this is the risk-free rate of return but of course once you start looking a little bit deeper and you uh, i think you dove into this uh, back to 1926 and then you started to also look at it after inflation tell me a little bit about what that showed uh, in terms of the evidence of of this safety uh, that we all think uh, we have in U.S. Treasuries, and maybe also sort of frame that into the uh, conversation of of why you, I guess, ended up with with a much broader portfolio than, you than know, the safe. We 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 wrote one of my first books. I remember I have a very fond memory where I was chatting with my dad once. He grew up on a farm in in Nebraska, and we still got a lot of family in Kansas. So I was I was kind of grating my teeth as I, as I heard you guys talking about wheat earlier because, <laughs> because wheat, <laughs> wheat prices and corn prices have been so low. Farming is, is basically getting treasury-like returns um, with, with none of the safety. Um, so I was, I was smiling as that as wheat prices. That's, see, that's why managed futures is a good hedge against my farm as well. Um, but anyway, so I'd, I remember looking at a check that he gave me that he used to keep everything. And so he had a check that his father, who was a, um, a truck driver, beautiful penmanship um, had been uh, cashed or been given. And it was, you know, for something like $2 or I don't even remember for what it was for. But, um, you know, you have this old phrase where you go back and say, I remember when a Coke used to cost 25 cents. And, you know, for for a lot of people, they kind of understand inflation and how the, the value of money declines over time. But it's unless it's being applied to their television for deflation or for their healthcare costs, you know, it's not something that people necessarily think about a lot. Um, and so we often take to Twitter as a medium to run polls and ask people questions because often it demonstrates, despite the fact that to, to, to be following me on Twitter, you have to be a, interested in quant finance because otherwise it's really boring. So you would think that uh, the people that I interact with are, are very highly educated in that world. But it turns out that very often people um, either have very large biases that, that they exhibit or they don't understand or, or just have, have never been exposed to certain ways of thinking. And so one of the things that you're referring to is um, the concept of if you take a step back and were to say, what is the best possible way? Let's say you're rich. You got 10, 50, 100 million dollars, billion dollars, 10 billion dollars. And you say, okay, I don't care about actually compounding this. I've won the game. How do I make sure that this is, um, I don't destroy this? Because there's some ridiculous stat about how um, 90% of wealth is lost by the third generation because, um, you know, a lot of the, the, the person that builds it, his children, his grandchildren, wives, everything else, husbands, nieces, nephews, um, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily the same education structure. Anyway, how do you preserve that? And it's an interesting question because 
as you think about the risk of preservation of wealth, the, the biggest challenge is that inflation. And in the U.S., it's been mild, though at times um, I wasn't really around for it. But but we've had periods of of pretty impressive inflation in the 1970s. Uh, many countries around the world have high and persistent inflation. Think about Brazil and Argentina. Um, and then there's a lot that have hyperinflation that totally destroys their economies. You think about uh, many modern uh, countries, um, but also um, examples right now like Venezuela, Turkey, etc. So how do you build a portfolio to, to prevent about that? And so a lot of people would say, you know, treasury bills, I put my money in the bank, it's safe. And that kicked off another discussion, which was most people that put their money in the bank actually earn zero, not even treasury bill returns, which is one of the biggest ways that brokerages and banks make money. So if you're listening to this and you don't know what you're earning on your bank uh, cash, it's probably zero. So you should check. Um, but particularly in the U.S., there's no reason not to be earning two plus percent that's guaranteed. Um, it's kind of a no brainer. So long winded <laughs> again, but we gave the example <laughs> that. Even if, first of all, if you had invested zero, you put your money under the mattress, which no one really does. But if you're earning zero in your bank, that's essentially what you're doing. I mean, my grandfather used to put money literally under the mattress. And so eventually you'll lose all your money. I mean, that the, the effect of inflation will, at 2 3% a year, doesn't sound bad, but eventually you'll lose all your money. Um, but if you invest it in safe, the ultimate safe investment, treasury bills, which right now yield 2 3%, um, you basically keep your head above water. You, you have a very, very, very slight return over time. But, and this is what a lot of people don't understand, on a nominal basis, you have no drawdown. But on a real basis, meaning after inflation, you end up losing half your money at some point. And that's usually because of times of financial repression, which, by the way, we've seen in the past decade, where inflation can be higher than short-term bond yields. So thinking about a way to build a portfolio um, and the takeaway, and this is, again, uh, an area where I depart from 99% of the people out there, um, you know, the, the takeaway is that you can think about um, if you frame investing as savings, first of all, talking about branding, I think it, it gets people to behave better. So if you talk about savings and say, look, you should be investing in um, stocks and bonds as well. Uh, is gold and in our case, trend following is a. I often leave trend following out of the discussion because I feel like it just people just their their brains start to explode. But um, you know, I try to want to keep it simple. But my point was, if any of these asset classes probably have declined by uh, 70, 80 percent at some point on a real basis, but if you build a portfolio of them and you invest it, you end up in a much better place. And so the global 60 40 portfolio following same difference probably actually better you end up with a lower drawdown than cash uh, but you end up with a much higher return so uh, a lot of people that park their safe money in t-bills you could actually it's probably safer because of inflation to be investing a portion of that we said two-thirds as an example and in addition you end up earning about two or three percent more over time um Anyway, it's, it's, it's a fun takeaway. It's a different way of thinking because I don't think anyone particularly agrees with me. There's one guy that agrees with me, um, which is my friend uh, Dan Egan at Betterment, who actually um, they introduced a feature that lets your checking account sync with short-term bonds. And so 
instead of earning you know zero, you earn two and a half. And you're starting to see a lot of the fintech offerings come out where they're uh, parking your money um, to earn higher yields versus earning zero, which is great. Um, but we'll see. We'll see how long it takes Bank of America and all the big guys to catch on. I'm not. Uh, I'm not necessarily optimistic. Just a quick follow up because uh, I know Moritz and Jerry have have more questions. But but uh, do you think and 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 of course the four of us can can preach as uh, you know all day long and and we have a certain audience. But you know people such as Betterment, which you know I've read about, I've listened to some of of, of their interviews, obviously have uh, attracted a lot of attention. Um, but they don't, as far as I'm, I'm aware, seem to include that leg that 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 the four of us love a lot and and feel are very important, which is the trend following part. Um, what do you think needs to happen before they embrace that you know other side of of the equation as well? You know, we live in a time now where there's so much social media, there's so much um, information flow that just whips around the world so fast. I think if you have another year like a 2008 or even a, a just an, I mean, you got to remember we haven't, I mean, I guess last year technically may have qualified, but I was going to say we haven't had a bear market in the U S in a really long time. Um, 2017 was the first time in history where stock market went up every single year, uh, every single month, excuse me. Um, so it was, it was a little different. I, and I think people are very comfortable. I think if you have a period I thought you might start to see it at the end of last year, but 20, 2019 seems to be the opposite of the end of 2018. Um, I think if you have another experience like that, or even just a long bear market or deep, I, I think people, I mean, I, I was just over in Japan and you talk to a lot of locals there and, and it's very um, atypical for people to have the same long-term buy and hold focus there because they experienced the biggest bubble we've ever seen in the 80s and stocks have gone nowhere for decades. So you have an entire generation of investors. If you say buy and hold stocks, they're like, what are you talking about? That's a fool's game. You know, that's, that's stupid. Why would you ever do that? Um, so I think people, different people's experience around the world is not necessarily the same as the US. So I think what would it take? I, I think people, I mean, their biggest detriment is they, they chase returns and what's working. And so... Um, If you look around in the U.S., what's worked, you know, the U.S. stock market has been the darling and outperformed everything else on the planet for the past decade, and it's not even close. Um, and that's not normal, right? That that's a that's it happens, but it's not typical. Um, U.S. stocks versus foreign stocks is a coin flip over time, and a lot of people don't understand that. Uh, and so, I think if you have another bear market, you have another 2008. People start to look around for for solutions, you know, and assuming that managed futures and trend does well historically, it usually does, not always. Um, then I think that that I mean, if even if you look back at the history of institutions since my investing career since the 2000s, I go to all these institutional conferences and and the flavor of the day. I mean, you could just like walk through it, and it's embarrassing to look back in time, you know, about what everyone was excited about at the time in 2000, mid-2000s, it was the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, Russia, India, China. And then it was anything, uh, you know, risk managed into after 2008. And then, you know, it's, it's on and on all the different things. And so um, I think it's, it's nothing more than, than bad times uh, or, or a portfolio, traditional portfolio 
struggling or having a big fat drawdown. No, I mean, I agree with you completely. It's just that I think it's so sad that often uh, these things happen after the event, right? So, you know, right now perhaps is the time where you need this uh, diversification. And I think what you're saying, and and, and I agree with that's probably what's going to happen, is that people are going to ask for it after they, they needed it. But that's just the way it is. So, Moritz? Yeah, so, so I have another one. Um, I heard you say, Map, that, you know, we just heard this, really, you know, looking at investment horizons of 10, maybe even 20 years um, and, and you know, getting getting people to start early, not trade in and out of things, just, you know, hold on to things and enjoy the benefits of compounding. So I was, I was wondering, um, you know, you start an ETF company and an ETF is a trading product. You can trade, you know, every day throughout the day. And so I just thought, well, why an ETF? Why not a mutual fund, uh, which has, say, an NAV every day, or we could say once a week, or once a month, and is more like, you know, a stable type of buy and hold product? Okay, you got a lot, you got a lot wrapped in here. I'm glad we, we signed up for three-hour podcast. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I like to think or say that I'm product agnostic. Over the years, we've run separate accounts. Um, we actually partner with Betterment to run some digital accounts, separate accounts. And, and I think that um, the vast majority of wealth managers, for example, if they're not using some form of automated solution, you could call them robo-advisors, but automated process, uh, I think everyone will be using them in five years. Listeners, if you haven't tried one, go sign up for one, put a, put a few shekels in there and see uh, the experience is beautiful user interface. And it just whirs in the background and you no longer have to really deal with it. Um, so I, I'm actually product agnostic. And so, you know, Wall Street has been amazing about developing lots and lots of different ways to uh, build funds and charge fees, you know, and we've seen every type. We've seen closed-in funds, hedge funds. We've seen um, insurance-dedicated funds, ETFs. I mean, ETF is technically a mutual fund um, with with some different rules and exemptions. And so... Um, the big benefit of the ETFs, first of all, the intraday trading, I wish you couldn't intraday trade them. I, I think that's actually a drawback. I see no benefit to that whatsoever. And I wish you could do intraday NAV trading. Um, but a lot of people out there like to trade them intraday. That's for them. Good for them. But it's, it's not a benefit I, I perceive. Um, the biggest benefit I perceive is for equities, and this doesn't really apply to fixed income. It applies, doesn't really apply to futures. So it's not as big as a benefit for managed futures, although for some trend following, depending on what you're trading, uh, it can be a big benefit. It's, it's a vastly more tax-efficient vehicle. And everyone loves to talk about fees. You know, So they talk about, hey, you know, mutual funds, average one is this amount, and ETFs are less. And, uh, you know, and that's true. And so that's a benefit. But a lot of people don't really talk about other things, which taxes being a big one. Um, the ETF is simply the, the dumbest thing that the the active equity mutual fund space ever let happen was the ETF. Um, because the average ETF difference on taxes, there's something like 60 or 70% of equity mutual funds last year paid a capital gain in a year where the U.S. stock market was down. So you could have bought a fund last year, had a loss, and had to pay taxes on it, which is awful. Ignoring dividends, you have to pay tax on that no matter what. And the average ETF, it's like 5% or 6% paid capital gains. And that's just part of the structure. 
So I'm, I'm somewhat agnostic, but is, if someone invents a new structure that's even better, I'll use that. But for equity ETFs, it is a vastly better. And, and this benefits the average shareholder versus equity funds of about 80 basis points per year. And that swamps the actual management fee difference. And a lot of people don't know that. So that's why we settled on that one. But as far as actual structure, um, I don't really care. We, we proposed something on the podcast, which no one will ever do. And if I launched it, I, I'm certain I would get sued. But I said, you know, if people really put their money where their mouth was, if they say, okay, I believe in long-term investing. I want to invest for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. That's my horizon. You always hear people say that, right? And then they get a bad quarter and they sell it, um, whatever the investment is. So I said, okay, I want to launch a fund. This could be a mutual fund. It could be a private fund. It can't be an ETF. Um, and I said, all right, we'll invest in whatever. We call it my Trinity portfolios. It could be global market portfolio. It could be trend following, whatever. I don't even think it matters. But you're going to be locked up for 10 years. And I thought about even doing it where it's longer. But I said, okay, the, the trade-off is I'm not going to charge a, a management fee. We'll invest in our own ETFs and others. So there, there will be a cost of the portfolio, maybe 50 basis points or something. So pretty, pretty cheap. But there'll be a trailing uh, pit penalty for exiting the portfolio. So if you sell it the first year, you have to pay a 10% penalty. You sell it in year two, it's 9%. Maybe it declines over time to year 10, in which case it's zero. And um, Vanguard actually does that currently, but it's like 30 or 90 days or something on some of their funds. So they don't want you buying and, then, and tr they don't want you actively trading them. So they'll charge these penalties. And I said, so that's the, the, on the behavioral psychology side, that's the penalty. Um, but the reward would be the remaining shareholders get that as a dividend. So we wouldn't keep it as a management company. I would just dividend it out to the remaining shareholders. I love that idea. And I think it's a really cool idea. We called it the forever fund. Um, I don't think anyone wants it, like most of my ideas. And I think I'll probably get sued. But uh, I think it's a really fun idea because it, it pairs people with a time horizon that actually lines up. Uh, uh, one last example is we had an uh, older gentleman on the podcast who's an old school money manager. He's, he manages a few billion out of Seattle. And if you guys aren't familiar with him, he's actually um, a longtime trend follower. And his name is Paul Merriman. He's written a lot of great articles about trend following over the years, uses it in his practice. But he came up with an innovative idea where he says every time he has a grandchild, he gifts them, and I forget the number, maybe it's 1,000, maybe it's 10,000, but puts it into irrevocable trust. They don't get it until they turn, I, th I can't remember, it's either 50 or 60 years old. And when they turn, let's say 60, they then get 5% payouts from that fund. And then when they die, it goes to charity. So it essentially, it's creating a personal pension. But the cool part is for the cost of one or $10,000, 50 years of compounding, 60 years of compounding, I mean, that's worth like half a million or a million bucks. I can't remember the number. Depends what you compound at, um, but it, it's putting into practice that true biggest benefit that young people have, uh, which is long-term compounding, and the fact that Social Security may not be around in fifty years. Who knows? So anyway, the the reason that um, we did ETFs was taxable, but but I'm agnostic. If if we could come up with a better structure and brainstorm, I'd I'd love to. Um, but it's also for some products. 
um, it's not appropriate too. So you can never do catastrophe bonds in an ETF structure because they're illiquid. You could never do... Um, it's, ETFs aren't necessarily ideal for managed futures because um, you probably have to be a little more watered down on what you can do versus what we would all probably like to do in, in, in unconstrained. So um, I like to think I'm not totally biased because I'm an ETF manager, but, uh, but we think for some applications, the fact they haven't totally disrupted the active equity space yet uh, I think that's an inning one, to use a baseball analogy. And I think the active equity mutual fund space is totally screwed. I think it's a, I think it's a blockbuster Netflix situation. And uh, I don't know <laughs> when it'll happen. And I don't know what the, uh, if it's just going to be a flood or a, the dam breaks. But I, I think there's, on a relative basis, no reason to invest in active equity mutual funds, which is an enormous, enormous pot of money. Uh, versus their versus their ETF counterpart. Yeah, still is. That's right. And, go, and going back to y'all's old comment about you know like struggling with the the marketing and branding and shaking your head at how people you know don't don't buy into trend following. Well, there's a thousand examples of this. I mean, the biggest one to me is is active equity mutual funds, uh, which you could demonstrate to someone, everyone that in the planet that uh, that on an after cost basis, meaning expense ratio and taxes, like they have something like 150 basis point disadvantage to an ETF structure. If I was a pension fund or an endowment allocating to some of these managers through the mutual fund structure, I would call them up tomorrow and say, look, you got to launch this as an ETF or separate account, or I'm pulling my, my investment. Um, I'm surprised that hasn't happened yet. But th- there's a lot to say in our business about inertia. And it seems like money likes to stay where it is until until it's disturbed. Yeah, that's good. I <clears throat> yeah, I've been running a uh, CTA mutual fund for six years, I think, at least six years in. So this is uh, of interest. But um, I think I read somewhere. I don't want to get in, into all this, but I think I read somewhere where it's it's not impossible for the mutual funds to uh, do what it needs to be done in the mutual fund structure in order to have the same kind of. Um, benefits that uh, ETFs get. Yeah. And so not to get too technical, Jerry, I mean, so, I mean, again, when you're using futures, it doesn't really matter. I don't think because the tax treatment should be the same if it's in mutual funds or ETFs, but if you're doing equities um, in the way that ETF structure is built, essentially without losing all the readers and making them fall asleep, driving their cars or whatever they're doing, listening to this podcast, um, the, the, the way that ETF structures build the creation redemption mechanism allows an ETF, for the most part, should almost never pay any capital gains. It, it's like a stock. You, you, you buy it at a certain price, and when you sell it, you pay the capital gains. Um, and that's just a nice feature. And so Vanguard, of course, the kinda, they're, they're kind of becoming the death star of the investing world, um, despite being uh, a, a great um, fund complex. And a lot of people, by the way, don't know that Vanguard has more active funds than passive most people just assume Vanguard is only an index index fund manager. They actually have more active funds than passive. They're arguably the world's largest active fund manager. I think they have over a trillion in active funds. Anyway, um, they patented a structure that allows their mutual funds to essentially lay off some of their capital gains onto their ETFs um, because they have uh, somewhat of an umbrella structure uh, for both funds. There's a phrase for it, and I'm blanking on what it is. 
that patent rolls off in a couple of years, which means a lot of mutual funds theoretically could, first of all, they could have licensed it from Vanguard. They haven't, but they uh, theoretically could offer similar structures. Now, it makes it not as ideal for the ETF, but, uh, but it makes it better for the mutual fund. So you may see, um, and, and by the way, look, if the SEC and government got together, they could make this all copacetic and equalize the, so it's a level playing field across the board. And, but, you know, I, I'm not hopeful on, on that scenario ever happening. Um, it's silly and crazy for mutual fund investors to have to consistently pay taxes on this stuff. But hey, I'm an ETF manager, so I don't really care. But uh, it, it should get better for mutual funds in the future at some point. Um, but, uh, but it remains to be seen if, if it'll actually happen or not. Jerry, before you ask your question, I, I just want to follow up very quickly on this ETF point because it's something that I don't understand. And we actually have a, a question somewhat related uh, from one of our listeners. Uh, Michael wrote in uh, specifically about the ETF stuff. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, I, I seem to uh, remember that when it comes to an ETF, you kind of have to disclose your algorithm or your methodology. And this is why CTAs went to the 40x space where that's not the case. Uh, I mean, are there any dangers for, for CTAs to wrap their, uh, their strategy or for, say, someone who traded, you know, uh, systematically in the equity space uh, into an ETF, Matt? So um, that's a misconception. You don't have to disclose your formulas or anything. You need to disclose your holdings daily. So your holdings show okay. up on the website daily. And so if you're worried that somehow people are going to front run your positions somehow, or if you're, if, if you're a $100 billion fund and it takes you maybe a week to build a position, um, then it could be a problem. But most of the markets that y'all trade in these futures um, you know, it's it's not necessarily a problem to be executing. Uh, the problem is is not really the structure; it's the size. Okay. You know, and and once you get to, you know, and certainly in a mutual fund, and you can do it in ETF, it's kind of frowned upon. But you can certainly cap a fund at any size you want. Um, you know, I think the closed-in fund structure is great too, uh, particularly for the manager because it's pin-up capital that never goes away. Um, historically, it's it's been kind of a icky structure for the way that they structure and, and distribute it. But um, but yeah, if you're not worried about transparency, which I think is actually a positive, uh, then it's not a problem. So you don't have to disclose any any formulas or anything. You just have to disclose positions. Okay, great, thanks. Sorry about that, Jerry. Just needed to ask. No problem. Uh, yeah, I was particularly interested uh, way back when you were talking about. Managed futures being a bad term. Yeah, so I'm, I uh, emphasized to my son and or whoever you know who's interested, and I'm like, oh, yeah, don't call yourself a CTA or managed futures. You're a systematic global macro hedge fund. Um, yeah. And probably just so happens that uh, taking small losses and taking short positions in currencies and commodities along with equities and being somewhat uh, rule-based or, you know, uh, making money in long-term trends is probably just a universal almost uh, methodology for successful funds who figured out a way to stay in business and survive. Uh, and so it's just kind of a shame that um, we are, you know, we we're so transparent. It's just trend and we're CTAs. And um, I mean, we even get allocations from RIAs around the country who 
have a little business and they trend follow ETFs. Uh, they, you know, they never go short. They just uh, switch around to different types of uh, stock ETFs or bonds, and uh, they're like managing all this money with trend. They love trend. Uh, they see, oh, Jerry, you're like one of my heroes, and I'm going to allocate. <laughs> I'm going to allocate five percent to you, yeah, and yeah. I'll just take care of the ninety-five percent uh, with trend. Yeah. So it's kind of uh, so. Um, I was just wondering, what do you think about a, uh, would you sort of uh, recommend or it's sort of late to the game for some of us, but uh, it seems to me that uh, rather than having a product that is, uh, you know, somehow supposed to deliver crisis alpha, which it doesn't really do reliably because crisis alpha is uh, what happened in two days in February, uh, and I'm only going to allocate five or ten percent, anyways. But uh, maybe to create the perfect more product that, as you said, uh, the client can actually hold. It's not optimal necessarily from our sort of uh, superior intellectual point of view. Uh, but let's say that it's mostly equities and uh, it's trend following and a few uh, currencies, fixed income and commodities on the side, but not to confuse you or to make you uh, have FOMO when the S and P's up. Uh, you know, 500% and we're only up uh, 400%. <clears throat> but uh, it's something maybe clients can hold more. We can give clients as much trend uh, as they can handle versus our strategy of, no, you need to embrace uh, currencies, commodities, stocks, bonds in this product that, you know, it's really difficult for the average person to hold on to. I mean, I 100% agree. You know, I mean, we... A fun example, I mean, the first paper I ever wrote, the first time I wrote it, the title was A Simple Approach to Market Timing. And no, not only would no one read it, it visibly, visibly would make people angry when I sent it to them. And the comments I got back were so vitriolic and hateful about this paper. And so I said, that's funny, I'll just change the title. I changed it to, the title is, was now, A Quantitative Approach to Tactical Asset Allocation. And everyone loved it. Right, and, and nothing changed in the paper other than the title. People hated hated the phrase "market timing." Media, I mean, I, I you can't even begin to use that phrase, and people lose their mind. But uses the phrase "tactical asset allocation," and it sounds professional. It sounds rigorous. I don't know, and it's the same damn thing. And so we we spend a lot of time thinking about how to. I mean, the behavioral side about investing, and there's a lot of great books out there by. Uh, Jason Zweig and, and um, uh, Montier and others that talk about all the behavioral problems investors have. And so we spend a lot of time trying to frame that discussion. I mean, I, I ended up calling our allocations where we put half in trend following. We called them the Trinity portfolios. And people seem to like it. I don't think it's the, the optimal description, but I was trying to think of something that would resonate uh, with people, and I don't think we've hit on the the perfect phrase yet. But we need to all put our heads together and come up with something because you know whether, it, God forbid, be smart beta or something else. Um, you know the certainly the the fund industry is great at coming up with marketable ideas, and if we can get anything ever close to dividends, uh, then we'll if we can get one tenth of the success of dividend and yield as a concept, then then we'll be okay. But uh, I'll. Uh, I'll wait. I'll wait for your son to come up with something good and, and let me know. Yeah, well, I do remember having a phone call many years ago with a client and explaining uh, our strategy to the client, and it was totally fine. 
Um, I think another huge mistake is the CTAs uh, have not embraced uh, cash equities, you know, uh, single stocks in that type of diversification. That uh, damages the reputation a little bit. <clears throat> um, but uh, so uh, we were very proud to tell this uh, client that, well, you know, we trade the single stock futures. And uh, <clears throat> he was like, well, how do you trade those? I'm like, oh, the exact same systems, trend only, nothing else. Uh, got very hostile. Uh, here I was attacking, right? Maybe his MBA, his education, his his worldview on how you're supposed to do things. Uh, look, if you goofballs are going to trade currencies and commodities with trend, whatever, I have no idea. I don't really care. Uh, but if you start getting into my territory with mm -hmm. equities and value and fundamentals with this, you think you can replace me with a trend? So, uh, yeah, I've, I've yeah. experienced that firsthand. Well, you get a lot of, it's almost like a religious or cult-like um, belief system for a lot of people. And it doesn't even matter what it is. You could find people that are the in Canada, my friends that are the gold bugs, or you could find people in the crypto space, we call them the blockheads, or you can find the dividend investors, whatever they're, um, I love to pick on the the DFA advisors because um, that's like, I, whenever, I, whenever I get a lot of hate mail, it's almost always a DFA person going crazy about something. Um, but uh, but people have, have find their own worldview and stick to it, and I think that's just an investing in in life. You know, it's super dangerous to be um, to 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 just put your head ostrich like in the sand and say, um, you know, there's there's only one way to do things. And we often tell people, well, a lot of people call us and say, Meb, why should we use your stuff instead of Vanguard? I say, Vanguard's fine. You're probably totally cool with this, but you know, it's not the way I I do it. This is what I do with my own money and. You know, there's some stats about a lot of these equity managers, and it's something like if you look at the fund, the public funds, and the amount that the the it's like sixty to eighty percent, depending on the category, have no money invested in their own fund. And that's my favorite stat to tell people. I said, look, I don't, I don't even care if you uh, what your belief system is, but at least hope your manager is is believes in it himself and invests the same way because likely he doesn't. So I don't know. It's, uh, it's, 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 I think the, the, the best thing we can do to tell people is say, look, this is what we believe in. This is how we invest and go ask, go ask your, go ask your, uh, your clients, your managers, if, if they invest in their own ideas a lot, it's surprising to hear, but a lot, a lot don't. Yeah. I've uh, read articles, uh, Morningstar and et cetera on what a good indicator that is for fund performance. Uh, just, uh, I had this, I, uh, I'm not the only one, but I think, I don't know, so getting your opinion on this sort of idea that active management is really just another word for discretion and systematic is another word for, um, index is another word for systematic rules. And so, yeah, no, uh, no doubt that um, the rules-based is beating the discretionary. How true do you think that really is in the stock world? And we were all discussing earlier before you got on, is there uh, this danger of passive uh, in the sense that um, if we had too many people investing in commodities and CTAs, we may say, oh, this is a problem. Uh, there's too much interest. The performance is good. A lot of, a lot of investors, a lot of people getting into the CTA business is is there is uh, index s p passive indexing is that gonna those rules don't apply well here's here's the challenge um you know if we go back in time get in our our teleporter again and go back to the 70s i mean the true invention 
of index. You know, pa Passive meant something in the 1970s when Bogle and Wells Fargo and others started running the first index funds. And it meant very clearly um, market cap weighted, and that's it. That was the only index, the, the true passive index, and that's what it meant. And over the years, um, and it was hugely unpopular. If if anyone, I don't think any of you guys may may have remembered this, but you know they called it Bogle's folly, and people um, took out ads in the newspaper to make kind of make fun of him in this in this concept, and others were doing it as well. But Bogle's became the most famous. That's all that passive meant. Well, now the term passive and index has become so polluted. I could create an index. The example we always give is the, the hamburger index, whether your CEO eats hamburgers or cheeseburgers, and that's the index, and I could charge 5% a year and run an ETF based on that. And that's totally nonsensical, of course, but the people that are religious about passive and indexes would say, hey, that's great, it's an index, you know, and it makes no sense, though. Um, but you could have an active fund that, uh, that does nothing, that's actually... Uh, market cap weighted and charges very little, but it's an active fund. And so the SEC has actually struggled with this, and there's a whole mess of rules around active and passive with the ETF space that we don't need to get into. But they're finally, after much prodding, I, I think I may have been a force in this because I complain about it vocally so much, uh, they're finally proposed and hopefully passing a new rule this year that, that kind of levels all that um, and puts them on equal footing. But um, I think that historically, particularly in the equity space, if you think about alpha, on average, it has to equal out. You know, the people that earn extra returns are at the expense of people that uh, have lower returns. And so on average, if you look at everyone being average, because of management fees, yes, people will underperform the broad index. That's just kind of the math and the way that it has to work. And so on average, when you have 10,000 plus mutual funds, which is crazy, but still the, the, the case, on average, what should be the biggest determinant if, if it's, there's so many and it's kind of a wash on who's good and who's not? Well, it's just simply the math of it is just fees. So traditionally, it doesn't matter if it's active or passive. Usually it's the lower cost performs better than the higher cost. And you see that historically. If you look at all the Morningstar studies and ratings and everything out, Fees tends to be one of the biggest determinants of performance, but passive tends to do better than active, and that's largely because passive tends to be cheaper. Um, all that having been said, I think an interesting concept would be because we're rules-based, and, and so it's funny, it's, this discussion drives me nuts because we run both passive and active ETFs in some cases because we have to run passive ones Everything we do is rules-based. Everything we do is quantitative. So you could, you could argue it's active. You could argue it's passive. It's, it's totally lost all of its meaning. But I think if you, another potential idea of the trend-following space, framing it as index-based, I mean, it is. I mean, it's rules-based is an interesting idea. Um, I hadn't really thought much about that. But, it's, uh, but, but people, certain people gravitate towards that term, um, and and much prefer the the term index, and for partially good reason. You know, I mean, the, the if you think back to the traditional real hedge fund active manager, the George Soros, the Julian Robertson, a lot of these guys that, that you almost saw them as cowboys. You know, 
forget managed futures. Those guys, is it's been a graveyard the past 10 years. My God, almost like half of them are retiring because it's been an impossible uh, struggle for them on performance. But as an allocator, it's so easy to, to allocate to managed futures or something or an index because it's rules-based. And all it is at that point is just portfolio construction, algorithms, statistics, that's it. The challenge of allocating to an active equity manager, that is like my biggest nightmare. Do you get rid of the guy once he gets a divorce? What if he's going, what if he's uh, now a billionaire and spends all his time playing poker tournaments? Like, is, is he still motivated? So there's so many other influences into those portfolios and decisions. To me, it's so weird that institutions are comfortable with that um, totally discretionary world versus something that much more rules-based or index-based. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that the, the idea of framing on, on what we do as indexes is a pretty nifty idea. Um, and the last comment about size, I mean, I, I don't think that's necessarily active or passive. I think it applies to any asset class or strategy with capacity, um, where if you look at hey, if you're going to go invest in Brazilian small cap tech companies, there's a capacity where that starts to have an influence. I actually saw um, a fellow we had on the podcast who did a really interesting study where uh, his name is Dan Rasmussen. Um, He did a study that basically replicates private equity and leveraged buyouts with using a simple quant system. And it's basically small micro cap stocks that are highly leveraged. And it goes to show that the entire private equity space could be reduced to a formula with public equities. Um, but he also put out a recent piece lately that said, hey, look, if you look at the value factor historically um, and all these mutual funds that say they're value but are basically closet indexers, um, the biggest problem with that is the value factor where you get all the benefit is the concentration of the bottom two deciles, and that just doesn't have that much capacity. So you can pick your poison. You can be a money manager with good performance and cap your size, or uh, you can be a, a asset collector, you know, and get to 10, 50, 100 billion, but actually not be doing anything uh, and have no shot of performance because you can't concentrate. So yeah, capacity is certainly a challenge. I, I don't know that um, that's necessarily a, a, an index phenomenon because particularly in U.S. equities, active mutual funds are five, ten times the size of the, their ETF brethren. Um, but I, I, I totally see how it's a, it could be, you know, flows, flows change factors and valuations around the world at all times. Um, but I don't know that it's certainly an a index or specific fund phenomenon. Matt, we, we have a lot of questions uh, that came in for you. I'm going to try and just focus on a few of them. And I know that uh, Jerry and Moritz still uh, have a few things to uh, to ask you while we still have you with us. Um, before I do so, let me just say that uh, to to in, to people um, writing in, uh, such as Antonio, Brian, Paul, uh, and Carl, we will get to your questions next week because they are slightly different, and and some uh, some things that uh, Jerry and Morris and I can can deal with separately. But I also wanted to uh, just comment on the thing that uh, Jerry uh, talked about and the question about passive versus uh, active. And I want to encourage people to go and listen to uh, Mips uh, recent 
recent conversation with uh, Chris Cole, where essentially he is, uh, you know, uh, very adamant that this um, period of time we've had, and correct me if I'm misquoting this, uh, but this period we've had where a lot of active managers have kind of gone out of business and where we're left with a lot of uh, passive managers, when those flows start to change, when the you know uh, baby boomers start to withdraw their pensions rather than paying into them, um, there won't be potentially as many people stepping in to uh, stop those uh, you know uh, price boosts as they go down. Uh, so there are some dangers building up uh, below the radar. But I thought it was an interesting uh, conversation, and Chris is going to be on uh, on um, on the podcast here on another conversation that has already been recorded. Uh, so so look out for that as well. Now we do have another question from another Michael actually that relates to uh, factors, and and of course you come across uh, a lot of factors um, in in your world, and I think you have. You might have a little match going on with Patrick O'Shaughnessy where I thought I heard, a, maybe this is an old episode I heard where you had this uh, <laughs> a little match where you were picking, you each had to pick four or five different factors and then you're going to see how they all worked out. Um, how is that going? And and also, what what are your favorite factors uh, when when you look across the board? You know, I assume I'm crushing Patrick because he refuses to publish <laughs> the performance. Um, and I, I wish I could even remember what mine were, but it's like the old Maynard Keynes beauty contest. It, it, the the challenge with doing we did a factor draft right. where we went back and forth and picked factors, and um, you have to not only pick factors that you want, but in what order do you want them that the other person might also pick them? So uh, I, I wish I could even remember which factors I like. But, you know, the, the thing that I say, and by the way, I feel bad talking so much on this podcast, but I listen to you guys each week, so um, I don't feel that bad in, in that regard. So uh, I, I get my I get my fill on the, on the other weeks. Um, as you think about market cap weighting with stocks, and so that's traditionally the, the easiest place to start with factors, but... Factors in generally work across a lot of the asset classes. There's a couple main ones, but the first step we we say is the most important thing is to break the market cap related link. And why is that? So if you talk to people and you go ask your children, friends, nieces, nephews, and say, "Hey, you know, you invest in the stock market? Yes, um, I invest in you know the S and P market cap weighting." So, well, do you know how that's constructed? And they say, "Yeah, size." You say, okay, well, size based on what? And they usually say, well, you know, how big the company is, like their earnings and revenues. And, and it always surprises people and pros alike that market cap weighting has nothing to do with any fundamental variables whatsoever. It's, it's the ultimate trend following index and it's just price based and that's it. And if you think about it, if you're thinking about a strategy that uh, with companies and earnings, you know, having no tether to fundamental value as far as way to do it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so if you then include some factors, and I don't think it even matters. Um, the, the first important step is breaking that market cap link. And the reason that's important is traditionally, um, the way when companies go up a bunch, then they often get expensive. And that, in the future, becomes a drag on returns. And so, uh, historically speaking, if you break that, there's a good example we give that Ned Davis puts out where they demonstrate investing in the largest market cap stock in the stock market when it's the biggest. So 
Right now, that's probably Apple, but over time, it's been IBM or GE, Cisco, and it's a horrible, horrible investing strategy. It underperforms the market by a mile, and that should make sense because it's just capitalism. By the time in the U.S., a company gets to 4% of the total uh, market cap or a uh, trillion dollars, which Apple hit, usually there's competitors out there. You know, there's companies, if you look back at... Um, you know, the top 10 market cap companies over the years, uh, you know, it's not the same names. And so by the time that someone's making billions of dollars, you better bet that there's some young people out there at some other company or another country that said, I'd like to make billions of dollars too. And so that's the creative destruction of capitalism where, um, you know, these, these top names don't survive forever. And so if you break that link, and it doesn't matter what factor, so equal weighting, is a simple example, but any of these should outperform the market cap weighting by about a percent or two per year over time. So I'm partial to some of the value ones. You know, we like to use a value composite, which is meaning using a lot of value ones so that you end up with the cheap stuff. Um, and equally as important as you're avoiding the expensive stuff. So I don't think it really matters which one you use, but uh, we're partial to shareholder yield, which correlates very highly with cash flow. Um, we like momentum as well. That's a big one. Even better is if you combine the two, you buy cheap stuff that's going up. Uh, it's probably my, my favorite combination. Um, and how you frame that, I don't think it really specifically matters. Um, but, but that works around the world as well. Uh, you know, a lot of the factors in valuation. It's funny, if you look at where we are at this point in time, you know, the US, we believe, is one of the most expensive stock markets in the world. I don't think it's horrific, but I think most of the markets elsewhere are much cheaper, in some cases downright really cheap. But if you look at the top 10 companies by market cap globally, it's pretty rare for it to be majority or all US. And I think it, if not all US, it's pretty darn close, the stocks. And, and that's an indication of the times we are right now where the US has is, is absolutely outperformed everything else. So, um, But factors also apply across you know, Cliff Asnes at AQR has written a paper on this, um, value and momentum everywhere, that looks at factors across asset classes for value, carry, momentum, trend, all those good things. They have one of the longest dated trend following studies I've ever seen, um, where they take a, a managed futures back to, they tried to do it back to like 1900 or something somehow. <laughs> I don't remember, but, uh, but value, momentum, and trend are, are the three that um, I, I personally hang my hat on. Sure. Appreciate it. But there's, you know, by, by the way, there's others. There's ones where people will invest based on is Congress in or out of session, which historically has worked. But we, um, we like to say is, you know, is, is this something you could explain to your niece or nephew um, in high school and it makes sense? And, it, and is it timeless and universal? Uh, is it something that'll work in most markets around the world? And does it work over time? Otherwise, if it's, if it's not, you kind of scratch your head at why, why it may work. Chances are probably probably it won't. Yeah, no, absolutely. Jerry Moritz, another round of questions before we uh, wrap up today's conversation. What do you mean wrap up? I thought we were on a five-hour podcast. <laughs> well, we could go on for five hours, and we're definitely <laughs> going to have to bring Meb back uh, for sure, but uh, we also want to respect uh, his his time and, and our other commitments. No, we got we got to flip the tables next time is where uh, we'll do this yeah. uh, four-way conversation. I just get to ask you guys questions for an hour and a half. Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. We'll do that. 
But maybe one one thing, uh, you know, the name Chris Cole came up, and obviously that creates the bridge to to volatility. So, Map, are there any vol products that you trade within within your ETFs? Any you know vol ETNs, VIX ETNs? Not really. And Chris, by the way, is great. He's a little crazy in a wonderful way, um, like almost everyone is that kind of tends to have a, a vol or short bias focus. Or uh, I could probably extend that to our our family of trend followers too. Um, you know, we launched a fund that uh, is a concept that is one of the few funds I don't include in our allocations, but to me is an interesting idea. And it was this tail risk concept where we wrote a paper and said, you know, what does it look like if you uh, buy a bunch of puts on the stock market? How does that perform over time? Is it a good idea? Is it a bad idea? And it turns out, not surprisingly, it's not particularly a good idea because it's, it's an insurance cost. Uh, much like house insurance or car insurance is a cost. However, um, it can be, particularly there's no better investment when it hits the fan in stocks than to own a bunch of puts when the market's down in any given month or year. But the way we, the reason we launched it, um, the, the main reason we launched funds is because I personally want to invest in them and they either don't exist or we think we could do them a lot better or cheaper. So in this case, it didn't exist. There's no funds out there that, that just buy a bunch of puts. Um, but we launched it, interestingly enough, I think it was in 2017 or 2016, so right before the worst year of all time for uh, a, a put strategy, which is it's 12, six, it was like 16 months up in a row in the stock market um, every single month with the lowest volatility. It used to make me laugh when people would say, uh, commentators on TV say, these really volatile stock market. I said, this is the least volatile stock market in history. Um, anyway, but the reason we launched it was a, another thought experiment, going back to the concept of things that 99% of people probably don't agree with me about. Is I said, you know, the average wirehouse broker, you're at Merrill Lynch, uh, Morgan Stanley, or any of these RIAs in the country, they own a portfolio. Chances are, and we've, we've asked this question over and over, so I know the answer, 80% of their assets of the stocks are in the U.S. stock market, um, which also globally should only be half. GDP weighted should only be a quarter. But people put 80% in the U.S. stock market. So consider the stock exposure, essentially U.S. stocks. And then if they own bonds or other investments, they uh, the stock volatility swamps the bond volatility. So really your portfolio risk is just stocks. And it's just, not just stocks, it's stocks in the U.S. So... That seems like an odd way to invest. So, of course, obviously, we would like to add trend following and other ideas, but but let's simplify it. And then you say, on top of that, almost everyone's a buy and hold investor. On top of that, the average financial advisor is essentially like quadruple leverage the stock market. And you say, how is that? Well, they own stocks in their own personal account. They own stocks for their clients' account, which their companies, which their revenue is based on. So if stocks go down by half and they charge a percent a year, their revenue just went down by half. Um, in addition, their uh, clients are more likely to panic and sell when the market's down. We've experienced that. Clients usually, the kink starts to come at it down about 20, and it probably gets a power law worse every 10% after that. Um, so you risk your revenue going down as well when in a bear market not just because of price, but also because clients leaving. And on top of that, if you work for a company like a Morgan or Merrill or Lehman, um, and it's not your own company, 
you have risk of getting fired when that happens because the company's revenue goes down. So as people think about lifestyle, like most of us would say, man, it was really dumb for all those employees of Enron to invest all their money in the Enron pension fund. That seems very obvious to everyone. But you say all these investors, and there's tens of thousands of them, if not over 100,000 financial advisors, that put all of their money, all of their eggs in one basket called the U.S. stock market. You know, and Taleb used to write about this in his first book. And you say that's kind of an odd way to go about life. Airlines hedge their main risk, fuel costs. Cereal companies hedge their main risk, which is wheat. Um, why in the world would most of these advisors put all their money and all their risk into one asset? And so that's, we launched the fund saying, you know, theoretically, if you're an investment advisor or if you're a um, uh, financial advisor, theoretically, you should own no U.S. stocks because the rest of your life is all exposed to U.S. stocks. Of course, no one does that. So I said, if you're going to do it, at least own, you could own some hedging instruments. And in the paper, we talk about it. We said you could diversify globally. You can add real assets like gold um, and real estate, and you can add trend following. But the the last one is you could also, assuming you're not going to do any of those things you already have, you could also add tail risk, which has the ability, and it's very similar to shorting, but I think less costly, um, add something that will diversify your life. And so we've actually had a couple billion-dollar-plus firms reach out and say, hey, we've, we've started to implement this. So, Jerry, like your comment earlier, you're like, I laugh because they don't implement it with me. They implement it on their own, um, but that's fine. Uh, but they, they took the ideas. And so I own probably uh, more, more tail risk exposure than just about anybody, I imagine, out there. And our company owns some, too, uh, as a way to help smooth out the bumps. But um, anyway, it's one of these ideas and papers that I think is brilliant, but everyone else thinks is harebrained and, and has no interest in. But... Uh, Again, that's the that was the, the ten minute two minute description. Jerry, do you want to pose the last question for now? Oh well, I just have another sort of uh, selfish question, just along the lines of um, when I hear people write articles about um, chasing chasing performance or market timing. These are meant to sort of educate people, and yet uh, they don't really try to draw the distinction between. These could be uh, things one should not do, but trend following uh, is sort of close to that. So it would we would think that if uh, the bottom line is sort of edu- investor education, that there would be a distinction between uh, these bad things and this sort of proven anomaly. Uh, Fama French have put their stamp of approval on it, and so, uh, but it's just a little frustrating. You have to well, listen to stuff like that. The, the way the way that we frame it is, we say the distinction on on a lot of the timing stuff, and why everyone's so such naysayers and negative about it is, is it's not the market timing. It's it's actually the, the the people and the examples they're giving are that the the investor has no plan. They have no set of rules to guide how they invest. And we talk a lot about this. And and I often will poll Twitter and say what. What percentage do you do you have a written investing plan? And it's usually like zero. Like no no one ever does. And that's dangerous because it opens the door to emotions. And so, you know, if if you don't have a plan then any framework to how to even think about how you're gonna do it, you know, when your neighbor comes over and says, Man, I'm making so much money on my Netflix and Tesla position, or 
you know, years ago as, man, I just bought into this, these Chinese stocks, whatever it may be, whatever the hot topic du jour is, um, and vice versa, we've seen a gazillion times people sell things as they're going down. You know, our friend has a quote that says, you know, investing is the only business when, when things go down. When things go on sale, everyone runs out of the store. Uh, you know, he's talking about, talking about stocks. And so um, we, we wrote an article called The Zero Budget Portfolio, and it's a riff on these private equity guys. Not, not the best time to be talking about it because uh, Kraft Heinz got, got pounded this week. But the guys that work with Buffett, you know, they have this concept, and it's about budgeting where, you know, and you can think about this in your own personal life where most people, their approach to budgeting is just on the fly. Whereas the way they do it and with their company is each year they start, let's call it Jan 1, they wipe the books clean and say, all right, should we add these expenses? And so I think for a lot of us, if we were to do that with our life, you know, would we add back that $200 a month cable bill? Would we add back, you know, that Audible subscription you haven't used in two years? Like all these things, right? There's a different way of thinking about a portfolio. And we tell people that's a great basis to, to approach their portfolio. And so we say, go look at your portfolio, take out a clean piece of paper, write down your ideal portfolio today. And a couple rules about how to implement it. It doesn't have to be a 10-page policy portfolio like the endowments do, but it could be one page. It could be, I invest 30% stocks, 30% bonds, 30% in trend following, and it rebounds once a year. Like That's fine, but it, it should be written down. You should share it with someone. But take out a white piece of paper, write down the ideal. And if that's not the same as your current portfolio, then something is amiss. And usually it's not. You know, Mostly the way people cobble together portfolios is, they just buy some over time. The average financial advisor owns something like 200, who's been in business for, I think, over 10 years, owns something like 200 mutual funds. It's just this mess. It's this big bowl of soup of just nonsense. And so most people cobble together portfolios in the same way, and it's not a thoughtful exercise. So that opens the door to what I would call emotional investing. I wouldn't call it market timing, which, you know, again, with, with, with when you frame it as a rules-based approach and trend following is, is a great thing. But really, it's emotional panicking or, or chasing greed, fear, and envy of, of allocation. Um, and so to distinguish the two, I think, is, is pretty important. But you know, most, most of my friends in the media don't. They, they, they like the boogeyman of market timing and buybacks and everything else. I'll put politicians in the mix, too. But um, you know, again, it goes back to so much of this has its roots in there not being any uh, there's a huge education gap in investing, and a lot of this could be cured by uh, a good curriculum. So maybe maybe this is something you guys should start. It's too much work for me. Uh, but uh, I think uh, any of the listeners, you, you want to start the Rosetta Stone of investing and build a great curriculum, I'm, I'm, I'm listening. Uh, I think it's a, a great business idea. But I think the biggest problem is no one, no one has a plan. Yep. No, I think that is uh, very true. Um before we finalize completely our conversation, I will, as I normally do, just run through roughly where we are in the trend-following space so far. And as usual, these numbers are as of Thursday evenings. And uh, I have a feeling that Friday may have been a positive day, but I'm not entirely sure. But anyways, the Top 50 index is up about 42 basis points for the month of February, down 1.35% for the year. Gen CTA index up 72 basis points, down 1.17% for the year. 
SockGen Trend Index uh, is up 1.28% for the month and down 1.97% for the year. SockGen Short-Term Traders Index is down 80 basis points for Feb and uh, down 2.43 for the year. And the Bridge Alternatives, the Flat Fee Index, is uh, up half a percent roughly and down 3.5% for the year. We could as mentioned, go on for a long time. I hope we will um, get together again soon. Meb, uh, this was fascinating. This was fun and uh, incredibly educational uh, at the same time. To the listeners, let me just say that you should definitely keep your questions coming, as usual. Send them to info at toptradersonplug.com or send us a tweet. Meb, thank you ever so much for spending your Saturday morning with us. We really do uh, appreciate it. Yeah, it's, it was it was a blast, guys. We definitely got to do it again. And uh, when you find yourself in Los Angeles, come say hello. Absolutely. Yeah, we definitely want to do that. Yeah, thank you, man. If you uh, like what you heard, please help others discover the show by leaving us a rating and review on iTunes. And please share this episode with a like-minded friend. One share is all we ask for. And of course... Make sure you follow Mep on his various social platforms, especially Twitter, as well as subscribing to uh, his podcast, of course. From Mep, Jerry Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you on the next uh, episode of The Systematic Investor. And in the meantime, have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.